Stephen Hackett is back. Hey, Stephen. Hey, Tyler. How are you? I'm good. I've had a bit too much excitement trying to get this podcast recorded. I'm in a hotel room that I didn't plan on being in, so uh, this is as janky of a podcast recording setup as possible. So hopefully you're hearing high-quality audio out there and uh, not something from a computer or iPhone or bad bad microphone. <laughs> we'll see. Oh, boy. Well, uh, thoughts and prayers to you in this oh, difficult time. Thank you. But that's been my situation ever since WWDC. That's, I think that's what we're going to talk about a lot today. But it's the one that I've been the most excited about for a long time. Like this was, this was a big one. I think we all felt that it was going to be a big one. And I really, really wanted to be there. But instead, I've been in, I've been, basically I've been shooting all day, every day. I've had a lot of videos that needed to be done. And it means that most of my news has come in through like kind of checking my phone under the table when I'm supposed to be working and like sure. listening to podcasts on the airplane. So I actually, this is the first time I didn't get to watch the keynote. Oh, I've oh been, man. Like almost all my information is secondhand. Yeah. I watch the highlights obviously, but. Sure. Like the, you know, the Verge cuts it down to like 13 minutes or something. Exactly. I, like, yeah, I, I get the gist of it. Yeah. And then I listen to you guys. I'll talk about it while you were there. And um, sure. I think I know what happened. <laughs> I mean, we were now a little over a week later and there are still things that pop up because when you're, at WBC, this is my seventh time being in town for it. It's my first time attending the keynote, which is really cool. But I've been around it for seven years now. And there are times where it's like, I just don't know what's happening. And someone like says something in the hotel lobby, like, oh, what do you think about this or this? I'm like, you just broke some news to me. I don't know yet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, Because it's when you're at home, you can follow along and watch the video. But you can also like read articles and look at links. And if you're a developer, look at documentation sort of as it's coming out. And when you're sort of boots on the ground, if you will, it's it's much harder to do that. And uh, so it's kind of like a, a bubble for those of us who are there. So I feel like I'm finally crawling out of that, you know, now eight or nine days later. Yeah, getting the whole picture, which is a big one. I mean, I feel like the last few years, uh, all the keynotes, not just Dub Dub, but like any event, uh, I can walk away with it and digest it within the day. I have a pretty good idea of what was announced. I, knew it, I know what's coming soon. Sure. Uh, and I know what to be excited about. There is... There is so much. And it's not even just that there's a long list of features, but I think that, and this is a lot of what I want to talk about, I think they're profound. Um, like This is the one we'll be looking back on for a while and signals a lot of different shifts from Apple. Um, some very exciting ones, especially for Mac users. Anybody that's a fan of the Mac or the Mac, <laughs> Mac OS operating system, um, it was a big it was a big year. I mean, first of all, you were there. Like, what can just make me jealous? Tell me something cool about what it was like to be there. <laughs> it was my first time attending as press. They invited several podcasters in this year, which is really cool. And and you know how the keynote feels fast sometimes. Like you're watching it at home, and you know you get up to get a snack, and you come back, and there's you know some new platform that didn't exist <laughs> two minutes before. Yeah, it is so much faster in the room because mm. it's. You know, people are cheering and clapping, and it's a huge – I mean, the room is, like, enormous. It, it feels like you can see the curvature of the earth in this keynote room. <laughs> and uh, you look down for a second to type something in notes on your iPad like I was doing. You look back up. It's like, I, I don't I don't know how we got to where we are. It happens so quickly. <laughs> Somebody new is on stage. Yeah, it's, 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 it's really uh, bananas. But the, that was a real treat. But the real treat for me, I think, was definitely seeing – the Mac Pro in person. I know y'all just you just had an episode about the Mac Pro, but uh, seeing that in person, like talking to people and like showing what that machine can do, really made it more tangible than I think if you just read about it on the website or even me talking about it 
it was so different, you know, watching these these demos of like absolutely crazy amounts of data, whether it be video or, you know, complete like animated stuff or whatever it may be, what that computer can cut through, seeing it in person was really amazing. You know, I have an iMac Pro here and I, I know its capabilities very well, but the Mac Pro is just like on a wholly different level. And it was, that was a lot of fun to spend some time with it and, and see just what this new tower can do. It's really going to change the game for people in, in certain types of industries, I think. Well, another one that I think b- would be the best demo in person, what I really wish I could have seen is the monitor. Because things like oh boy. XDR, HDR, that doesn't translate to, you can, you, it can only be described. It's like telling somebody what a 3D experience is like. It doesn't really matter what anybody else says to you. Uh, sure. It doesn't count until you've seen it. In the last episode, I was talking about that a bit. The, the first time I had seen a reference, a high-end reference monitor, and how it really changed my perspective. Like it's, it's like doing drugs. For, it's like all of a sudden you're like, oh, there's another <laughs> world out there. Things can look different. Um, oh boy, yeah. yeah and, I mean, and even photos, <laughs> uh, uh, even photos of the glossy and the matte side by side don't really show the difference between the two. Right. And both are gorgeous in their own ways. And, you know, you may have a certain preference, one or the other. But, yeah, it's a piece of equipment that I would have no frame of reference for, if you will. Like, I don't have that experience of a reference monitor to compare it to. All I have is, you know, the iMac Pro, which is a gorgeous 5K display. But, again, it's like, okay, this is a different thing. Like, this is a different type of tool than what – I'm used to or even what I need. And it was fun to get to experience that. And I'm really glad that Apple opened the doors to more of us this year to to, to take part in it. I, I it really was a, a fun treat after following along for so many years. Well, and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna warn any listener that I don't I don't feel like following too prescriptive of a of a path. Like there's there are just so many things that are interesting. Yeah. But I wanna I wanna just follow them as they as they as they Come to mind because um, one that um, I, th- I thought was pretty interesting on Twitter that I was talking about, uh, and I, th- I think it actually might have become my most circulated tweet. So maybe oh, that's boy. a reason to talk about it. But I just pulled up BNH and found a bunch of screenshots of other pieces of metal for professional use. So, like one of them was an audio ra- a portable audio rack case, mm-hmm. and another one is a handle for an Alexa camera. And another one is a different handle for a red camera, and all of these mounts that are basically just machined metal, you know, with a few components that clip together, that all cost way more than the monitor stand. And I, like this was the headline that was everywhere. It's like a thousand dollars for a stand. Apple's lost its mind. They're totally out of touch. But the, the truth is that there's just hasn't been any other mainstream consumer company that has had such like such a visible high-end pro product. And in the pro mm-hmm. world, this is not that strange. And it doesn't mean that like it's worth it. Because it, a lot of people, their response was like, well, where's the value in that? Like, How is it going to hold up a monitor a hundred times better than my, my cheaper monitor set? <laughs> and the truth is, it's not going to do that. But that's not how numbers work at that high end. It's not, it does, there isn't a concern about value. It's like, I just need this to work exactly the way that I want. Um, so I don't know. I I just wanted to provide that little bit of perspective for anybody that has never tried shopping for extremely expensive sure. professional gear because it can get as expensive as you want, and nobody gets mad at Alexa for it because you know, or for Aerie because they are at the top and everybody knows it. They're not a consumer company, whereas Apple, you know, right. they have to be accountable right. to more people. 
Yeah, and I think that's a change that people just weren't expecting. I think people, including myself, honestly, you know, the, the trash can, but especially the towers before, you could get one as an as an enthusiast, right? And and it was still the most powerful Mac you could buy at the time, and you could of course upgrade it, and all that stuff is still true today. But it was more attainable than this new Mac Pro, and especially the display. I mean, Apple's displays have always been expensive, but holy moly. The difference is, and I think you 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 really hit it on the head, is that this is not an enthusiast product. No doubt there are enthusiasts who will aspire to it and who may, you know, save up and do it. I've got a, a coffee jar here and putting dollar bills in to buy a Mac Pro, maybe. But <laughs> the the Apple really put a, a stake at the very high ground of, you know, computing in creative environments. And that's what this is. Now there's still room, I think, and I hope they do address that other market. Uh, I wrote a thing that got did pretty well the week at WC of like just make a 5K monitor out of the iMac, right? Like it's just have that for sale for those of us who want an Apple display but aren't going to spend or can't. You know, in my case, I can't spend that money. I mm. don't have that laying around. So that's no, a lot. It is. It is a lot, a lot of money. But to your point, if that's the world in which you live, then it's not extreme. I mean, and seeing what it can do, seeing how it can replace these other reference monitors with come with all sorts of all sorts of trade-offs, right? You can it can only run for a set amount of time. You know, they're all, very often just 1080p or or less in resolution. It's only part of the workflow and this and with this you could have six or seven of them through your workflow, through your team of people so color and everything is accurate all the way throughout. It's a, that's a very game-changing thing if you live in that world. The thing is that 99% of Apple's users don't live in that world. And so the the rest of us, you know, in that that majority kind of look at this and scratch our heads, but I think it's just for a different type of audience and I think that's settling in, you know, the week of WWDC is it's a lot there's a lot of hot takes going on, right? It's it's the, yeah, the news yeah. is fresh, you sort of have an emotional response to it. But I think now with a little time, I definitely feel like I understand this product a lot better with a little time and reflection and, and talking to Apple about who it's for and why they built it the way they did than I would have if I had just seen the keynote. And so hopefully those of us with that knowledge can help explain it, not to defend Apple's choice on it, but just to try to put it into context for, you know, people like my listeners who, you know, may have been thinking about a Mac Pro and now aren't. Okay, well, like the iMac Pro is still really good. There's still space for that and kind of working our way through all these changes. Yeah, and I feel like I'm going to end up pushing back so hard against it that I, it'll almost seem, I think people will think I'm being overly defensive of Apple. Like I try to really not get too close to, to, to feeling like a fanboy and defending Apple at, at all costs because they, they make plenty of mistakes. I think it's just that there is so much confusion around this one that, um, you know, and a lot of people have so much distance from that professional market that it really is hard to relate to it. So that's why it's kind of my hobby horse lately. Um, it's just because I, am around people that it does make sense for, and I've spoken to them. Um, but there, there still is a definite split, and it's hard for people to understand that you can be a professional and still not be able to make sense of this. So uh, you know, I think a good example of how the story uh, is, is being told incorrectly is uh, The Verge did a piece uh, that I'll link to in the show notes. It's called, Here's What Creatives Think of the New Mac Pro. And... The, it basically it puts a pretty negative spin on it. And it says more or less that they missed the mark. The issue is that there are so many types of creatives at so many different levels. And 
to say that it missed the mark for most of them, I think is not is not telling the the right story. Uh, some of the quotes that they pulled in it are from people that I would say mostly supported uh, the decision. Um, and I mean, this is just one article from The Verge, but I just think I saw this floating around quite a bit as this idea of like, I talked to my professional friends and they said it was too expensive for them. And the thing is, it it is above most professionals. I mean, it, I, I was saying this on previous episode, but even, uh, you know, I've been working with more raw 4K video lately. That's not quite enough to justify this anymore, which like that's really high end. Like that's expensive uh, computing power that takes a lot of performance to get through it. But this is still above that, and that can be okay. That there, there is a world <laughs> higher than you can possibly imagine. Um, sure. and one thing I was g- going to ask you about, the, like historically, um, wh- like tell me uh, the history of the XServe because I didn't really follow it when <laughs> it happened. But like that, that seems like it would have had a similar narrow high end market. Yeah, absolutely. This is where I'm. I'm googling the article I wrote for it, about it for Mac Stories. See, I knew you uh, knew last year, so you could. Stick that in the show notes. But um, it is, you know, so the XServe was a a 1U rack. So, you know, if you think about a server farm, you could stick one of these in there and run macOS at the time, what was called macOS 10 server in a data center. Of course, people had them in, in, you know, small offices and that sort of thing too. But it was a very specific piece of hardware that most people never saw or, or, or definitely didn't need. But if you wanted to run Mac OS X in that sort of environment, it was the best way to do it because it was standard in the sense that you could mount it to a rack and it had you know, cooling the way you would expect in the server and things like uh, remote management, some of the things that regular Macs didn't have at the time. But it was it was expensive, you know. In the like in the G five era, you know, you could get one that started at four grand. Uh, you could buy a big array of hard drives that cost even more. You could spend a lot of money, but if you needed those sorts of services and and that sort of power, then it was a good option for you. But of course, most people didn't. And and over time, the XServe you know slowly faded and. Uh, it was finally discontinued in February 2008, um, or the X Raid, excuse me, was in 2008. The big box of hard drives, and then uh, the the X Server itself followed in 2011. And at that time, I was working as an IT professional, and I went out and bought one after they announced they're going away. Because in where I was working, we really needed a Mac that I could hang in a in a server rack. But mm-hmm. most people could get by now with a Mac Mini or something like that as a, as a home server or, or even an office server. And Apple has offered various configurations of the Mac Mini and even the old Cheese Grater Mac Pro as, quote, server configurations. But it was something that was really high-end and really specialized, and it slowly faded away as, as other things became uh, more popular to, to run in a, in a server environment like that. So I think it's different from the Mac Pro in that there is still obviously a need for a Mac Pro. I think Apple realized that a couple of years ago and then set off to build this this new machine. But there are definitely parallels in that Apple makes computers and makes products that aren't for everybody, right? The XServe yeah, was yeah. about as specific as you could get. And uh, ironically, the new Mac Pro, you can actually hang in uh, in a rack like the the, the XServe, which makes my friends at uh, Mac Stadium very happy, I know. Oh, I bet. But, you know, it was just a, a tool for a set number of people in certain circumstances. And then that need sort of dried up and, and Apple responded. And 
you know, it's, uh, it's something they've definitely done from time to time. Well, and I bet if this new Mac Pro had been designed to primarily be rack mount, like that was the main way it was presented, people would have had less of a negative reaction because be like, would, there'd be this visual signal saying, oh, that's not for me. That's not supposed to go under my desk. It's for people that rack mount their computers. Um, and sure. I think that the truth is more or less, like that's a lot of the, the people or the businesses that will be buying it are people that like to rack mount things. Um, and just because you don't, uh, you know, I I don't know. I think it's because it looks like the old Macs that started at a lot less, uh, and also that we kind of wish for it. I mean, I like I wish for a time where I could tinker a bit more with my computer. I enjoyed that. I thought it was fun. I liked being able to upgrade my graphics card and stuff. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's the format that really fits my needs the most now. Mm-hmm. Although, I mean, I'm gonna, I'm definitely going to find a way to try to justify it, but. I don't sure. know if it truly makes sense, but um. well, and and the majority of Mac sold are notebooks, and uh, you know we could talk about the new MacBook Pros. I have one of the new eight core ones, but they, the desktop is a is already sort of a a niche product for them, and the Mac Pro is is perhaps the most specific with even within that small pool, and so I think that looking at it as a Mac user and thinking, oh, that's um, that's not for me. That's totally fine. And yes, lots of people, you know, there's this rumor goes back in like to the mid 2000s, um, sort of the, the idea of an ex-Mac, the idea of like a, a mid-range tower from Apple. I don't think we're going to see that. I think if we were going to see something like that, this Mac Pro would start at half the price. But they, that's not the, the product they made this time. Mm-hmm. And, and that's fine. We can all get along and exist even though every product they make isn't for, you know, individual people like me and you. Yeah, yeah, and, and I will say that I I think there's still definitely space for a mid range monitor, and I would I'm going to actually put money on that it will happen at some point. Um, you know, just the fact that they've reentered the market and are willing mm-hmm. to make monitors now, and uh, you know, one an article you pointed me towards right before this was Marco's recent discussion about how Mac uh, Apple is listening to customers, how this looks like a clear response to what they'd been hearing from the public, which I, I think I see as well. Uh, if I think they've also seen immediately that everybody is saying, like, hey, why didn't you make a monitor for me and a monitor that I can afford? Like, stick a 5K iMac monitor on my desk and I'll pay you, mm-hmm. you know, a, under two grand for it. Uh, and I think a lot of people would be buying that. So, I'm gonna I'm gonna guess that they'll do it. Just just throwing it out there. I think so too. My gut says that they're not done with this, and I, I think they want to meet more people's needs. Right? You know, there, there are definitely times where Apple has a very opinionated stance on something. Right? The iPhone is this size, even though the world wants bigger phones. We're gonna stay here at whatever it was, four inches, and then over time they acquiesce and ship bigger phones. The Mac is different, though, because they do offer so many options. They can cover more areas, and it feels like the display is one of those things. Like, yeah, like clearly there's a market for something smaller, definitely less professional in the sense that I don't need you know a billion level, you know, a billion nits of brightness and and six K resolution. I just you know need something to put on my desk to edit podcast with. Yeah. I think I think you're right. There's definitely there's definitely some room there, and I hope they follow through with that. And my gut says they will. Here's the other thing that a lot of people might be missing in the story is that if this monitor is so expensive today, 
it does mean this will trickle down. Like it, it's at the top end now, but this is what we're going to be seeing more and more of. And when you talk to professional colorists or uh, like the team at Dolby are a great example because they're really leading the way and setting the standards. And they're working with, you know, 4,000 plus knit monitors right now, but they're trying to streamline and standardize what HDR really is. And they want to see a thousand nits everywhere. Like that, it's mm-hmm. not supposed to stay so high end. Apple's the first one to really bring it to, you know, mainstream at $6,000. How, I don't know how mainstream sure. that is, but they're bringing it to a wider public and in five more years, definitely 10 more years, this is what we're going to be watching things on. And it's it's going to be awesome. So uh, also just get excited about that. It, it's a sign that we will all be seeing this soon. Well, think about uh, Retina. It, it first showed up in the Retina MacBook Pro in 2012. And that machine was the high end of the MacBook Pro line. It was expensive for you know at the time compared to other MacBook Pros. But look at the march of that technology, right? It, well, at first it was on the iPhone, of course, and then the iPad and the MacBook Pro. And now any Mac with a built-in display except for the the cheapest of the cheap iMacs, come with a Retina display. And, and, and really in the course of only, you know, if you count like the MacBook Air kind of being the last main holdout, what, six years? Like that's just how technology works, not just with an Apple, but definitely with an, with an Apple. You can see these things enter the product line somewhere and say, ah, well, this is going to make it other places. You know, maybe it'll be watered down or maybe it'll be a slightly different version. But Apple's really good at that, you know, I think they've always been good at taking high technology and putting it in the hands of many as many people as possible. I know that seems ridiculous in the discussion of the Pro Display XDR, but no, it's true. Over time, I think it does it does play out to to, to that, and you even see it uh, to shift gears a little bit. Maybe you even see it in like the way that they build their development tools. You know, Objective C is like at least for me looking at it, it's hard to understand and hard to follow, but they introduce Swift and that makes development more approachable for more people. And then you have Swift UI coming into, I think, I think and over the next 10 years, replace UI kit and app kit. Eventually older ways of doing things are something new and, and easier to approach. Apple does this all over the place. Right. And, and I think that's exciting as, as someone who, you know, I consider myself like a power user, so I'm kind of at the high end of the you know the user range, but definitely people of all different types of experience and expertise benefit from this new stuff. It might just not be on day one. Well, before we depart from Mac Pros, because otherwise I'll just talk about I, them forever. I um, mean, I, I'm fine to do that too. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I have a specific question I haven't seen a clear answer to, and maybe you saw it while okay. you were there. With Afterburner, which yes. as a video editor looks like one of the most exciting things. This is a, it's a separate Card that is—it's mm-hmm. not a GPU. It's like a programmable processor with yeah, a bunch of other yeah. It's stuff called in there. ASIC uh, is the the term. So yeah, so it's it's dedicated hardware for like one or you know a couple specific tasks. It's kind of weird to talk about because you think about a processor as being a general computer. Like a processor can can do mm-hmm. all sorts of operations. Something like Afterburner is extremely narrow and specific for one type of job. Which I love. I mean, it's the type of job that we do a lot. But what it's super I, cool. <laughs> I ended up wondering is that the demos that they showed were all using mm-hmm. uh, ProRes RAW, which is yes. an awesome new codec. Like, it's really exciting. I would love to be working with it all the time. In the video world, the, the truth is that most cameras aren't supporting it yet. 
Um, not of, almost very, very few will do it internally. The best you can hope for is that you can send it out to an external recorder that supports ProRes ROS. You really have to go to some effort to be able to capture it. And there's no okay. such thing yet as transcoding to ProRes RAW. So on my camera that shoots RAW, there's no way to get it into ProRes. It's, you know, whatever RAW format you capture in, that's the only RAW format available. Um, if you turn it into anything else, it's not RAW anymore. You've baked in the information. So mm. w- what I'm curious about is if they said anything about working with or supporting other RAW formats, if there's any plans to work with RED on, you know, act- so that Afterburner can directly work on RED files or, um, well, actually Alexa doesn't typically shoot, but yeah, I mean, Ari Alexa's also shoot their own format of RAW. There's all of these different RAW formats. Will it only be ProRes in the long run, or are they going to expand it out? I don't know. Did you hear anything about that? It's a really good question. My understanding is that they are focusing on ProRes and ProRes RAW only, I, I, at least for Afterburner. Uh, yeah. I think I think what they would say is, and I don't I don't know. This is some speculation on my part. Is that because the Mac Pro is an open palette, basically for whatever you would want? That they are providing infrastructure for maybe other manufacturers or other codecs to be handled in the same way, but with different hardware. So I think there's room for you know, and I'm out of, speaking out of my depth a little bit on the camera stuff. But if Red were to you know come up with their version of this that you could pop into Mac Pro, Apple would welcome it. But right. for now, it seems like they're just focusing on their codecs, ProRes and ProRes RAW. Um, but what is cool about it even though it may be a pain to get into it. And that's, that's good to know because I'm not real familiar with this stuff. Uh, but they, they have announced, and they talked about it last week, support for third-party apps. So, you know, I think most people know that if you're on a Mac, Final Cut Pro 10 is generally faster than, say, Adobe Premiere for a bunch of, mm-hmm. like, optimization behind-the-scenes yeah, stuff because Apple controls the whole stack. Um, but the the Afterburner card, it seems like what they're going to do is is – allow third-party developers to access its capabilities. Now, you still have to work in ProRes or ProRes RAW, but if you build an editor or, or, or you know some part of a workflow that deals with that, even if it's not Apple software, it can take advantage of the power on that card, which is more open than I you know would maybe give them credit for a year ago. But I think they are trying to play nice with other developers, but I think they're, it's really specific to those two codecs at this point. Yeah, I mean, it's part of their just seeing that they're more committed to professionals in general because a, a weak part of their pro story right now is if you are in the Adobe suite, if you're using Premiere or you need to use After Effects, it runs much worse on a Mac. It's there's mm-hmm. no getting around it. It just it, it you're better off running that on a PC. And I think it would do them nothing but good to expand the amount of software that is great on a Mac because. Final Cut is, is fantastic. That's what I use to edit, but it's not enough. It's not part of like a complete editing suite story. So right. if they're able to get Premiere up to the same levels as it runs on a PC, that would be a big deal. And I, I really hope they can, even though it's not what I'm editing with myself. But Yeah, I think it'd be great. I mean, so many uh, people are using uh, Premiere in particular on the Mac, knowing that they're they're being penalized f- from a performance standpoint because it gives them features that Final Cut just doesn't. And uh and so, yeah, hopefully that becomes a, a a more flexible system for for those types of users. But um, you know, that's sort of sometimes in these situations you kind of fall in between manufacturers, right? Like, how much of that's on Apple? How much of that's on Adobe? How much on it is on the codec? Like, that's a complicated thing to unravel. But 
uh, I was encouraged that Apple at least is is really considering uh, other software titles, mm-hmm. um, if if not other codecs yet. Uh, at least people who aren't committed to Final Cut, like you know you and I are. Well, okay, I have a good way to transition away from it. Um, let's talk about software a bit. I would also love to see um, other professional photography software get better. For example, uh, you know, Lightroom is pretty slow. It needs some work. Um, Photoshop, same thing. We've got a lot of this like legacy software that they've been trying to move forward and, and struggle. And uh, last week I had the developer from Pixelmator on the episode and he was talking about how everything Pixelmator is written in metal. So as optimizations come from Apple, they get f- basically free upgrades. I mean, things just get faster in ways that third-party stuff doesn't get. We have some very exciting new um, development pl- platforms, uh, development technology, um, mm-hmm. just some new ways that apps can be written. How is that going to affect professionals in the long run? And and especially like, does it only affect apps that were written to take advantage of it from the beginning, or can this trickle mm. into other mainstream apps like you know like Photoshop? Sure. So uh, this is sort of a two step dance. I think is what Apple is uh, has entered into this year. So you have my analogy is already broken down, but you have step <laughs> one being Catalyst, the the artist formerly known as Marzipan of, hey, I have an iPad app and I want to run it on a Mac. That's not a huge fundamental shift. I mean, it's cool and weird that iPad apps will be able to run on the Mac natively, but Catalyst are the tools for a developer to take their app and tune it up for the Mac and, and run it and you know sell in the Mac app store or give it away on their own site, sell it on their own site, whatever. That's phase one. And I think long-term, really what that means is the the software library for the Mac will become wider and richer because like there's a billion iOS apps. A lot of them are really good. And I think we've all had that experience of I'm using an iPad or an iPhone and I really love this app. And then I'm on my Mac and I have to use the website for whatever that service is, right? Or or it just doesn't work at all or they have a cruddy app or maybe it's Electron or something. So that will make the Mac, I think, more flexible and like more desirable from the professional point of view that, hey, more apps are on it. And and I think Apple's done this really well. If you look at Windows, uh, if if we if we you know rewind the clock back 20 years, a huge de- debate point on the Windows side against the Mac was there's all this software for Windows. And why would you run a Mac? There's no apps for that. Or programs, excuse me, we're talking 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah. um, Applications. There's no there, there's no software titles for the Macintosh. And uh, <laughs> over time, that's changed, and Windows has has had struggles, and the Mac has changed a lot. But, but boy, unlocking the iOS app ecosystem on the Mac is going to be really exciting as a Mac user to bring some of those apps that I, I truly love and use every day on iOS, uh, bringing them to the Mac will be, will be great. Oh, yeah. It, it, there's some things that are going to be huge about it. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think about things that I use that, again, I'm stuck with a website. Or you know a cruddy little menu bar app, like um, not to pick on on <laughs> anyone in particular, but I think we all know those those apps and services that we use that are just there. The Mac app, if it exists, is perhaps like a a, a second rate experience, and right. and hopefully developers will work to to make that better. It's not automatic, you know. Apple loves to be like check the Mac box and you have a Mac app. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, yes, but it, you gotta go in and tune it up and do a bunch of stuff to make it feel really good. And hopefully developers will take that effort and, and make them good. A, a little tangent, uh, hopefully I don't get too far, is on the talk show in the ad read, he was talking about the new 
method that the Omni Group is using for their um, to run their wait. What, what are they moving where? Um, uh, basically, Omni Focus on the web. Yes, yeah. that it's running on the web, and instead of making it a web app, they're running it on servers. They're running the real app on servers and feeding you a. How do you describe? It? I'm I'm explaining it exactly wrong, but they're feeding you the real app, like it's like a screen share of the app running it's, on another computer. Yeah, it's super. It's super wild, and and what all this does is it gives developers more ways to reach their customers, right? And mm-hmm. and it gives users more reason to to partake in more parts of Apple's ecosystem, where they may have been tempted to have an iPhone, but then pick up you know a PC or a Chromebook or something. I think there'll be a, a a little bit of a halo effect of like, oh, well, these apps that are all on my iPhone and iPad, a bunch of them are on the Mac too. Why wouldn't I just go pick up a MacBook when it's time to go to college or time to buy my next laptop? Because mm-hmm. I'm already invested in this ecosystem. I'm already used to all these apps. Uh, and I can just move fluidly between these devices. That's going to be a huge win for the Mac once all that sort of settles out. It's going to take a little while and there'll be good and bad examples <laughs> of Catalyst apps. But I think in the long term, if it goes well, the Mac will come out the other side a stronger and richer platform. This episode is brought to you by Spark Camera, which is a really perfect fit as a sponsor for this. I get so many questions about how I edit my Instagram stories. The thing is, I want them to feel like a real story. I want them to be enjoyable and watchable and that you'll stick with it the whole time. Stories often get treated as disposable, but I like to tell a real story with it. And the way I do it is with an app called Spark Camera. It's available for iOS, and all you do is create videos by pressing and holding down, that's the record button, and then you let go. And then you press and hold again. It's insanely easy and quick to create cinematic vlog-style videos. Or any kind of video you want to create, really. They also have deeper editing tools. Afterwards, you've recorded it, you want to go in and fine-tune the cuts. You can edit them precisely. You can add music, you can slow down or speed up clips. And then you can just quickly add a filter to the color before you export. That's just what I like Smart Camera most for is Instagram, but you can use it for anything. I mean, you could shoot full-on YouTube vlogs in here, no problem. Or let's say you're hanging out with family and you want to create just a quick digestible story about the day that happened. You can just press, let go, press, let go, Spark Camera will assemble it into a very watchable, concise video. This is an app that I've been using a few days a week for over a year now. I keep going back to it again and again. It really solves a problem that I had before. I didn't know any other way to do it as well as Spark Camera does it. So go to sparkcamera.com slash Stallman. That's sparkcamera.com slash S-T-A-L-M-A-N to go check it out. And thank you again to Spark Camera for supporting the show. Well, the example that seemed the most exciting when I thought about it is Core ML um, for photography, especially. And uh, am I wrong? There was no way to access Core ML if you're a Mac developer previously, right? I mean, it was only an iOS thing. Mm, maybe I'm not. I'm not sure. Let's say yeah. yes for sake of conversation. I'm, and the I'm not sure, can but tweet, yeah, tweet I, at you. I think that's how it worked. Yeah, tell me that I'm <laughs> well, wrong. I'm looking. Well, I'm looking now. So it looks like Core ML. Uh, was available in ten thirteen and higher. So just a, it's only been out, it looks like oh, okay. a couple of years. So it's oh, okay. I definitely would say right. it's not as robust on the Mac as it is on iOS. Because what I see happening in a difference between Mac and iOS apps is that those those um, platform what do you call these these uh, cores <laughs> that Apple offers that kind of Fra- give you frameworks. a lot of yeah they give you a lot of intelligence for free. Um, you know, Core ML has brought some really interesting things to. Uh, Image editing, a uh, great example is, say, makeup, which I've used this example before, and it sounds cheesy at first because you think of it as 
like uh, Instagram filters or Snapchat filters where it just like puts all this stuff on your face. But what it actually can do well is is basic retouching. It doesn't have to be over the top stuff, but it can detect a face properly quickly using um, a lot of intelligence that's already there and available for you and do things that I currently do manually when I'm retouching images. But previously, it, you had to rely on a company like Adobe to write all of that machine learning code themselves. You know, Adobe's been doing lots of cool machine learning stuff, but it feels to me like it's been lagging behind. When I try to auto-select a human in Photoshop and I, you know, I want to cut out their face, it gets it so incredibly wrong. It, just, it is not as far ahead as what the apps that are written by much smaller companies on iOS are able to do, or now iPadOS. Mm-hmm. So having that technology accessible to everybody, um, I think for one, it opens the market for more professional apps because I think you can sell apps at a, applications at a higher price point on the Mac. Um, you know, I, I'm definitely willing to a lot of the time. If I'm able to use it with my raw image database, I'll just pay more because that's where I'm doing my professional work. It's not happening as much on my phone. So mm. there'll be these this this boost to what small developers are able to do at a high professional level um, by being able to access things like all these these easy development tools, same with you know uh, Swift UI and and everything else. Like you're going to be able to make a better app on a more professional platform, the Mac, and then you'll be able to sell at a higher price point to pros. So that story sure. is exciting to me. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Apple I think does a really good job at at giving developers um, shoulders to stand on. So whether it be machine learning or maybe it's something like uh, you know back in the day like core image even, you know, providing a lot of Right, filters and, and tools that you could just build into your own things. Apple does a good job at that, and and what's neat about Catalyst is basically they brought over the whole iOS tool, you know, toolkit, all the frameworks except the ones specific towards you know, hey, you have an LTE modem in here. Like, well, Max don't have that. We don't. We don't need that stuff. <laughs> right. But but the vast majority of the rest of it is now present and native in macOS, starting in uh, kind of in Mojave, but. You're kind of speaking Catalina and Ford, this next version. And that means that iOS developers who are reliant on those things will be able just to, to reach out and have them on the Mac as well. And yes, there'll be edge cases here and there, but it really seems like they brought the bulk of that over. And I think you're absolutely right. These tools give small developers, indie developers, they give them an opportunity to take on some of the giants like Adobe and maybe not have the breadth that something like Photoshop has, but for specific things, go way deeper and be way more powerful. And I think that's really exciting. You know, there, there, there's already some of that on the Mac. Uh, you know, you have uh, Pixelmator and Acorn and others. But being able to to access all this other, you know, this iOS technology on the Mac could, will make those even better and and provide uh, new tools on the Mac. Like I saw the developer of of Darkroom, you know, had had a an image of like, hey, I'm running on the Mac. Look for it this fall. Tweet the other day. And those sorts of tools are extremely useful on the Mac. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's going to be exciting to see what developers do and the new sorts of projects that will be possible when you when you partner all that stuff with, with what's already great on the Mac. It's not like the Mac is bad now. It's just becoming stronger and more flexible. And I think it's going to be an exciting couple of years as we see this march of progress kind of from the App Store, from iOS, coming over to the Mac, for, in some cases, in many cases, for the first time. 
Oh, for sure. I mean, I can think of all sorts of little targeted uh, applications that I've you know paid good money for on the app that I'm, or on the Mac that I'm willing to pay more for because it's part of what gets my job done. So, uh, an example that comes to mind is Neat Image. All it does is noise removal. That's it. Just takes noise out of video, and it's it's not even it's a terrible user interface. It's challenging to use. Like I don't like using mm-hmm. it, but it does a good job, and so I pay a ton of money for it because there was no other simple alternatives to use. But it's very specific and it's very limited. Um, but previously, like you, you know, there was you were going after so much smaller of a market if you only could develop these targeted specific apps for Mac. So now, you know, putting myself in developer's shoes, which it makes me more and more want to develop something. <laughs> like I can just imagine <laughs> more ideas of what I'd love to make. Um, mm-hmm. I can think of all these like single-use targeted apps that are just for, say, professionals that you can charge a reasonable amount on, that you can make a living on, and you don't need to be, I don't know, kind of fighting the the fight of of just using... C++ because all of a sudden now the the story of Swift UI makes it feel so much more achievable. And I don't know, maybe I'm just overly excited looking at it, but I glance at it as somebody with pretty limited development background. I only understand the broad outline of how development works and I kind of know user sure. interface. Yeah, but I do same. get this confidence <laughs> that like, you know, if I really wanted to, if I sat down, I could do something and yeah, it does. It did not feel like that on the Mac before. Yeah, and 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 Swift. So, so Swift UI, which you mentioned, is sort of the. I forget what my analogy was. What did I say? Two step dance. It's the second <laughs> step of the dance. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, this you is got gone it. Terribly wrong. It's working. Uh, so Catalyst. I have an iPad app today. I want to bring it on the Mac. You know, this fall. Hey, that's great. What Swift Swift UI is a much longer game, and so. You had on the Mac, you had AppKit, which has its roots way back in like Next Step, like way back in the 90s. And you have UIKit on iOS, which was based on AppKit, but then heavily forked. Those are the ways developers wrote user interface for their for their apps. And so what Catalyst does is it brings UIKit to the Mac, if you will. So it brings the iOS tools to the Mac for the first time. What Swift UI does, or what it will do eventually, uh, is replace... UI kit and app kit. Uh, that's not today. That's not tomorrow. Honestly, it's probably like ten years from now. Mm-hmm. I think I really think it's a, Apple's playing a very long game. But if a developer takes the time to rewrite their their user interface in Swift UI, or there's somebody like me or you who, you know, we're not developers, but maybe we have an idea. You know, in looking through the Swift UI stuff, like I can kind of see how it works, and I, mm-hmm. I I think I could learn it far easier than I could learn. AppKit or UIKit. So it's more approachable going back to that that thing we believe about Apple. But also it's going to be right out of the box native on all these platforms. So it's not just a transition from one platform to the other, but a Swift UI application can run on everything from the Apple Watch all the way up to tvOS. And that, I think, when you're talking about we're going to remember this keynote, I believe that Swift UI is what puts it in like the the history of the great Apple keynotes. Things yeah. like the the Intel switch, you know, 12 years ago. We remember that because it was a big deal. And I mm-hmm. think Swift UI is just as important because it it is Apple's plan for the future. They're not unifying their platforms in the sense that, you know, maybe like the Windows has tried where you have one Windows uh, and it runs on your Xbox and your laptop and your tablet and whatever. 
it's not that. The Mac is still the Mac. Your iPad is still your iPad. Your watch is still your watch. But underneath that, once you you go down a level deeper, uh, they're unifying most, if not uh, really most of, of what developers could do. And that is a big deal because uh, up until this point, and really if, if Catalyst was the only story, if the only story was bring your iPad apps to the Mac, well, like the Apple TV is still in like limbo and the Apple Watch is still kind of terrible to write apps for, but Swift UI solves all those problems. Now you have to rewrite, that's that's the penalty. You have to go into your existing code base and re, and rework it. Or again, if you're new, it's maybe a much more welcoming place. And that, that's really exciting. Are things like UIKit going to be deprecated? Like, are they being encouraged? Will developers, you know, in 2020 or 2021, will they be encouraged, like, please don't use this old code because it's going to become harder and harder to write? Um, like, are they, will there be a push away from the old world? Or can people kind of live in both as long as they want? I think eventually AppKit and UIKit will be deprecated and go away. Mm-hmm. But I think honest, honestly, I truly believe we're talking 8, 10, 12 okay. years out. I, I don't think it's anytime soon. Um, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, Apple leads by example in these sorts of transitions. And most of Apple didn't know about SwiftUI until Monday, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, uh, they, they said that as much in uh, this, uh, in the most recent episode of Upgrade, where Jason interviewed the guys who worked on SwiftUI. And they're like, no one knew about this, so there's very little Apple software written in SwiftUI yet. And over time, they will lead by example and start, re, you know, start rewriting their their apps in SwiftUI. But that's that's a really that's a long process, and I think we can we can look at Apple's other software transitions and see that this is not something you do quickly because you have to bring developers along because if they revolt and say no, then uh, you don't have a platform anymore, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. I don't think that's good. I don't think Apple wants that. So it's. I think that's a very long-term goal. But they're starting small. SwiftUI doesn't solve all problems today, but it will evolve over time and mature over time. And I think if we are recording this in, you know, five years, we're going to say, hey, this is really getting to the point where, like, if you're starting out new, don't start in UI kit. Don't start an app kit. You should start in SwiftUI. And in seven or eight years, it's like, hey really don't do that like mm. <laughs> swift ui is is where the where we all need to be now and then a few years after that remember that old stuff like that's you know that was great for its time you know appkit at that point will have like a 30 year history but you know now we have swift ui and it's uh it's really mature and that's the way we build things now so it's a it's a long game but apple is really good at those long games and i think i think they'll find success in it yeah i think i didn't see from any developers complaining about these announcements. It seemed like such a win for anybody that develops for any Apple platform lately. And I, like, I think so. A, a really exciting one was uh, that we talked about on the last is like seeing the 3D, like higher-end VFX 3D platforms announcing metal support instead of the need to bring in support for NVIDIA cards. Like, oh, guess mm-hmm. what? Your software that you thought needed NVIDIA to do well can now run... Uh, natively using Apple's own frameworks and and own technologies. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm excited. I I don't know everything that it means, but I know it's all interesting. And I'm going to be I'm going to be looking sure. at the news a lot for the next few months. So, yeah, um, it's it, it's 
this year Apple really reminded us that the D and the and WBDC does stand for developer. <laughs> you know, oh, for some sure. years it's like, hey, we have new Mac OS, we have TV stuff, we're doing stuff there. But this year they really um, – that was really the focus. And not just the keynote, but like the State of the Union and, and every sort of the discussion. It was basically the Mac Pro because we all waited for so long and Swift UI. And I think that's – I think you're right. I think developers – are really excited about it. And of course there are always people who are afraid of change and who who view any new thing a threat to their, you know, their their beloved platform. Usually Mac fans get worked up about that. But I think that's short sighted because if we want the Mac to thrive and to survive, we want this sort of stuff to take off. Because look, the Mac is not Apple's biggest platform. Mm-hmm. It, it's just it just isn't. It used to be, but it's not anymore. And if we want the Mac to continue to be healthy and be and be relevant, it needs to benefit from what's going on in iOS and iPadOS and everything else. And ultimately, it makes the Mac harder to kill if it is benefited from that and has grown from it and it's it's more integrated into people's workflows as opposed to being this weird outlier that they just use when they need a hardware keyboard, right? The Mac needs to be more than that. And I think Catalyst and SwiftUI sort of unlock that potential for the Mac. And I think it's got a bright future because of it. If this had come out and they said, hey, you know, uh, you can use SwiftUI for any iOS-based uh, platform, but, you know, we don't have anything to talk about the Mac, then I'd be worried. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm not at this point. I, I'm just not. I forgot in the when we were talking about it, but I wanted to also just mention your great article on 512 Pixels. It, I mean, it was a guest article, but putting the Mac Pro's price into historical context uh, I just oh, yeah. want to make sure to uh, point that out. I think it was a really interesting <laughs> chart to look at. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if it like changes anything. It's kind of what I expected, but it's really neat to see it all in a graphic there and get a little bit of understanding of how previous <laughs> Macintosh products were priced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Apple, historically, you know, we, we think about them as a consumer company. But what's what kept Apple alive in the '90s was desktop publishing, not selling c- consumer computers in Sears, right? Like, yeah, yeah, they did plenty of that, but that's not what uh, kept food on the table at Apple. It was people buying Power Macs and Quadras and all the expensive things, and so it's different now. And I think that's why the Mac Pro feels like such a shock to some people. And I think that's why some people also look at the software stuff and sort of scratch their head, like. What are you doing changing the recipes? Like, well, Apple is just a different company now. And uh, if, if there's anything that is evergreen and true about Apple throughout time is that they're always changing. And we saw a lot of that this year across – really across almost every front. I mean it's hard hard-pressed to think about a platform or a corner of the company that didn't get some sort of overhaul uh, this year or at least in the last couple of years, really, yeah. when you kind of go through the list. Well, so now that we've come out of the bubble, are there any other interesting details that you've been thinking about over the last week or that have come to light? I, f- I feel like I'm, I've been so focused on the super high end that I can't aff- It's like putting the Lamborghini poster up in your dorm room. Um, I'm just staring at the expensive, fancy things, and maybe I'm missing the more practical, smaller details that are actually going to change my life day to day. What have you been excited about other than the, the big, expensive stuff? Hmm. Um, well, we, talk, we talked about the development stuff. Uh, I and maybe it's because that that trailer was like custom made for me because I'm a, like I have the Apollo spacecraft tattooed in my arm. But <laughs> seeing yeah, yeah. F- 
finally seeing part of like Apple TV Plus, you know, showing that trailer. Why wasn't that ready like six weeks ago when they had a media oh, event? I I yeah. don't know. Yeah. Um, it looked pretty good. At though. least it, the, the show looked great. You know, the I forget the name of the show now, but uh, basically for all mankind, ru- is that, the, is that yes, it? yeah. Uh, basically, Russia won the space race, and it never ended. Is like that's a really inter- interesting premise. Like, I am excited to see what that's going to be. Um, again, that trailer was like the perfect one to show me. So maybe it's just they, pl- you know, I'm we got played right into their hands. But Apple is is on this course of like changing their media services. I mean, just on the Mac, iTunes has been split up. The music app, and I've seen a lot of back and forth on this. The music app in Catalina is is iTunes, like. It has the same modal preferences. It still has all your smart playlists and your local library. Your local library and Apple Music kind of have equal footing now as opposed to iTunes where Apple Music was kind of like shuttled off in a tab somewhere. But um, the music app still seems like it's going to meet the needs of people with big local libraries but bring in Apple Music as well. And I think they, they've, they've, they're in this process of overhauling where iTunes was a big monolithic thing. Now their service, their media services are sort of siloed off again where you've got – podcasts and books and TV and, and everything else. And I'm excited to see where that goes, not because I consume a ton of it, but I think it's just a really important – it's been an important part of Apple for a long time. And to see how, how they change it and evolve it in our modern era where you know Spotify is, is, is huge and they have Netflix and Hulu and Amazon, all these other competitors. To see Apple take that on in the Apple kind of way will be – I think really interesting over the next couple of years. Well, it's funny. It made me realize that the only files that are still on my laptop in front of me right now from like high school, you know, files that have mm-hmm. been dragging around for more than 10 years is my iTunes library. Um, you mm-hmm. know, even like photos that I have from that time, they're on hard drives that are buried in a cupboard somewhere or there's nothing else that survived except for I definitely have some very random songs that have still been getting dragged along every time I change computers since you know 2002 or whatever. Um, so right. uh, there's, there's something I still, uh, that I'm glad to see that it still can exist in the way that it did. Because, um, I, I don't know, there's still those random tracks that aren't on anything. or I, I just don't want to even go to the effort of trying to you know, recreate certain playlists that I still enjoy, but... I'm not going to put time into them. So I'm glad to see that they're still kind of dragging that old stuff forward because, I don't know, I still listen to old music. I, I, I don't refresh sure. my playlist that often. So Yeah, look, look um, I mean, I'm a firm believer that whatever you listen to your junior year in high school, you still listen to today. And, oh, yeah, uh, it was the only good music ever made. <laughs> exactly. Everyone of every age thinks that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, they've got to support all that legacy stuff. And I think it was a nice nod to people who do have huge libraries or – or maybe like me or you, where we have a blend of local music and streaming. Like they, they've sort of answered all of that. So I think they've handled that well in, in what I've seen. Um, something else that I think has gone under the radar, but I'm, I'm really excited about, is to see what they've done with Reminders. You know, Reminders mm-hmm. was a very basic app, and they've sort of taken the notes approach. Remember a couple of years ago, notes got a huge overhaul. And now I think like everybody I know uses it for, I, mean, I got 500 things in notes, 500 individual notes now. Reminders seems like it's undergone a similar transformation to be – it's not going to be as powerful as something like OmniFocus or things. But if you just need a couple of to-do lists and you want an interface that makes sense, then I think Reminders is going to be like a relevant option maybe for the first time for a lot of people. And I'm excited to see where that goes. It's very early in the betas now. 
Uh, like today I discovered that I tried to sort a list. I set some test items and the sort menu is just empty. Like there's a sort menu item, but then the sub menu, like there's no options. It's like, well, they'll probably add some of those at some point. <laughs> right. Yeah. Hopefully but it's, it's early, but I think a lot of people, I mean, reminders is very heavily used now because it's the default, right? But I think a lot of people will appreciate the extra power and organization that are going to come to that app over the next, you know, through this beta cycle and, and into the fall. So I think that's going to be one of those two that like notes is so popular. Now reminders will only grow in popularity, even amongst kind of power usury type people yeah. who, you know, the power of the default is a, is a strong thing. Well, before the notes update, I remember switching between every third party option every month because yep. nothing really stuck. I never found anything that I loved. I think I probably used Evernote the longest um, but nothing, you know, it wasn't working for me. And now I'm all in. Like, it's crazy how much I write everything there. I don't end up opening pages very often, even like even full documents. Like, it's where I write just about everything. If I'm, it's even, sure. I use it kind of the way that a lot of people like drafts, which I've tried a bit and I like it, but it hasn't stuck. I use notes mm-hmm. that way of that. I just kind of do throwaway writing in, in there as well. That um, if I'm preparing an email, I'll start off by writing in notes and copy paste it over, things like that. Um, it's my everything. And right now I'm in that same stage for reminders, or if, yeah, for reminders and to do apps and stuff. I mean, I'm kind of split between things and I also use TickTick sometimes. And I just, I kind of keep jumping back and forth because I'm not very organized. Uh, but nothing's stuck with me. Nothing's been what I need all the time. And the, the reason I end up using reminders is because of Siri. It's the easiest way to yes. say "remind me whatever." Um, if suddenly that works a lot better, I, I'm going to do the same thing I did with notes. I'm going to be all in, and it's probably what I'll be using for everything. And I'll probably be better organized for it. I think it'll turn out well for me if you know if they do a decent job of it. Yeah, I, I think they will. It's very promising in the beta, and they showed some features where, like you could have a reminder triggered by an iMessage threat. So say that I had a reminder. It's like, "Hey, ask Tyler about our recording date." And next time I sent you an iMessage. It would just sort of float up, like, oh, hey, yeah, you so need cool. to ask him about this. Yeah, I and, love that. And no other app can do that because reminders at the system level. So right. that sort of integration will probably win me over, uh, honestly. Yeah, no, it looks really great. Um, mm-hmm. what, else, what else is new with you since the uh, last time we talked? I don't think you were doing Mac Power users when we had you on the show last. Yeah, I don't know. I started that in January. So uh, MPU's a show on, on Relay. Uh, we're recording episode 500 this summer, which Crazy. is... I stepped into some very big shoes when, <laughs> yeah. uh, when when Katie left, and it's a show. It was one of the first shows I've listened to. I've listened to it for a long time, and uh, if you haven't checked it out, Mac Power Users is a really interesting blend between topical shows. So, f- for instance, a couple weeks ago, we dove super deep into Day One, you know, the journaling app for Mac and iOS. We spoke about it for an hour and a half, like all the things you could do with it, all the features, pros and cons, alternatives, all that stuff, and then we do. A lot of workflow shows where we tackle a topic like maybe uh, task management to go back to our previous discussion. And we talk about these are the the three or four big players. Here are the pros and cons. Here's what we use. Here's how we use it. And sort of sorting through that stuff. So a lot of those shows are very evergreen. And then the third type of show is interview. So we're going to have you on here pretty soon to talk about, uh, you know, how you use your technology to get your job done and, and talk about a bunch of different types of technology with a bunch of different types of people. And it's not just nerds. It's we've had uh, sheep farmers on. We had a (laughs) um, a professional. Yeah, it was wild. (laughs) Um, 
you know, people who do uh, speaking and writing for a living, all sorts of things. And it's really fun because we're all just trying to figure out how to use this stuff uh, better. And I think Mac Power Users over the long haul and, and continuing into today is really good at, you know, kind of cutting through a lot of the noise, like what actually can help you do your work more efficiently or or, or make something you couldn't make before. And uh, yeah, I'm really enjoying being on it. I was really honored to be, to ask to uh, to step in, and it's been a lot of fun. No, I love it. I mean, yeah, I've, it's one of those that I've been subscribed to kind of forever. I mean, I since podcast started, I don't remember when it started. Mm-hmm. The show started, but I don't remember not. Yeah, it, listening it just to it. <laughs> crossed its ten year anniversary wow. like a couple yeah. of weeks ago. Really wild. And so, something I'm curious about from a programming perspective, something that is it has in common with this show is that. Um, so I try to I try to do a lot that's evergreen, and you'll notice this episode probably isn't. This is a very newsy show, and will expire mm-hmm. sooner. How do you think about the balance when you guys are choosing subjects? Like, is it okay that three shows in a row are going to last for a, you know the next two or three years, and then you just suddenly have a completely contemporary news show? It's weird, and I think um, I think we're fine having sort of those one-off news shows. Like we had a WDC episode with a, uh, an interview with Doug Brooks, the product oh, manager for the so Mac Pro. So good. Yeah, it's a must listen. Yeah, thank you. It was <laughs> – that was a crazy email to get, <laughs> believe me. But uh, we're fine dipping into the news on MPU, but our default is we want something that, that can can stick around for a while yeah. because look, there's lots of other shows. I mean I'm on Connected, which is about as newsy and short-lived as it can get some weeks. Mm-hmm. And uh, we just don't think MPU is the place for that. We, we will dip into it when we feel like it's applicable. But we really want to handle topics and interviews and workflows sort of on a deeper level. And and for me, that's a really nice change of pace because so much of what I do at Relay is just news-focused. And it lets me sort of slow down and get deep into something and mm-hmm. I think that because of that, like we have really built an audience that they, – they listen to that news elsewhere, but they come to MPU for those other types of uh, types of things. And it's it makes it unique, I think, in tech podcasting. Well, and there's a challenge with news because so often the story changes later, but nobody's Mm -hmm. talking about it anymore. So, you know, for example, we're talking a lot about Catalyst today and SwiftUI, but by the time they've really made an impact on the industry, we'll probably be talking about it a bit less because it won't be a news item anymore. You know, it won't get get half an hour dedicated to it. It'll more be uh, a a tangent. And um, that's, yeah, so that's something I really like about Mac Power Users is that you're able to stick to something for an hour or longer that um, we've we've been living with for a while. So you know, a, a mature application that we're all you know using either casually or we're using in depth, and now we can go deep in it. So you know, I don't know. I like that format, and um, I'm always thinking about what makes sense for a podcast too. So I, I appreciate mm-hmm. watching what you guys do. Yeah, it's it's a weird thing. You know, MPU's back catalog gets downloaded an order of magnitude larger than something <laughs> like Connected, right? Um, and I've definitely had those situations. So like Connected, we had, we record on Wednesday, and basically we hit stop. I make a sandwich or a salad or something, and then I sit down <laughs> to edit it to get it out as quickly as possible. Yeah, yeah. Because I've had that time where like in the edit time, like in it the changes. window that I'm editing, it's like, well, that story's dead, right? <laughs> or something huge happened, and it looks like yeah, we missed yeah. it. It's like, well, no, it just happened 10 minutes after we hung up. So it's a different type of pace. And so for something like MPU – 
you know, we record almost a week in advance, sometimes even further in advance, because if 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 we're going to say something that's going to be dead within a week, we shouldn't have said it in the first place, unless it's one of those those news sort of things. So we want an interview to stand the test of time. We want topics best they can to stand the test of time. Like, like in five years, the day one episode, you know, day one will probably be drastically different. And maybe the nuts and bolts that we talked about will be different. But hopefully the time we spent talking about the benefits of journaling and the benefits of doing that digitally, at least that stuff should stand the test of time. So it's it's been a fun challenge to get used to that mindset. But now that I've sort of adopted it, uh, I really find it enjoyable. Well, and can I do a little reverse MPU interview on you on what your workflows are like these days? What what are you working in? What's your machine of choice? Uh, sure. How do you get things done? I mostly just run around screaming and, <laughs> and lots and a little bit of crying and uh, some yeah. Some days it feels like that. So in, in the studio, I use an iMac Pro. I use the base model, like stock, you know, five thousand dollar iMac Pro, and. Uh, it's my favorite computer I've ever owned. Like I, I really love it. It looks great. It looks great. It's powerful. It's silent. Yep. I had a 5K before that, and the the fan noise caused trouble when I was recording. Because look, my microphone right now is, you know, a foot away from the front of the of the computer. Like it's very close, and I needed something to run basically in silence. And the iMac Pro solved that for me. And it can cut through when I work on YouTube stuff. It can cut through 4K footage. Very smoothly, much more smoothly than my old 5K did, where I had to, you know, uh, use a proxy workflow or something. And now, just in Final Cut, I just dump 4K footage from my Sony A7 III into Final Cut, and it's fine. Like it well, just works. Yeah. Are you ever waiting for anything? Uh, you know, working on an iMac Pro, which th- this is kind of what I'm wondering. I'm trying to find that place. Of like, when does somebody need a Mac Pro? Do you ever find yeah. yourself waiting and wishing you had a faster computer? I mean, on occasion in Final Cut, if I am, you know, if I'm doing motion stabilization or something like that, mm-hmm. it, you still have to wait for it to do its thing. But it, it's far faster than anything else I've ever used. But I'm, you know, doing single stream 4K. I'm not doing much in terms of like color correction. Like my my video workflow is painfully simple because I don't really know what I'm doing yet. So it's it's very basic, and for my needs, it Final Cut. Is definitely powerful enough, and, and and what I do, but as far as the audio side of things, I never wait for anything. Like it, it renders MP3s in forecast crazily fast. Logic is smooth. Uh, even using something like a Isotope RX7, which is a, a a suite of plugins for Logic, and it has a standalone app as well for noise cancellation and deticking and and de reverb and those sorts of things. It's Most of those are multi. Cutting a lot of noise out of my background right now, I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, it's a it's an amazing tool, and that's multi-threaded, so it takes advantage of this big fat Xeon processor sitting in my computer and splits the workload up a bunch of a bunch of different cores, and uh, it just rips through it. So if you're working just in audio, the iMac Pro is is plenty powerful. Like honestly, like if we just having like computer therapy, my workflow doesn't demand a Mac Pro. I don't feel like I've moved past what this iMac Pro could do. And even if I had, I could, you know, move to one with more RAM or a, the the better GPU or something. But honestly, where I am today, the iMac Pro meets my needs really well. And so if I buy an iMac Pro, it's not out of frustration with my current setup, if you will. And you said you're also using the 8-core MacBook Pro a bit lately. How's that been? 
Yeah, so I picked that up. They revved that, what, a um, couple of weeks before WWDC, I think. And yep. I was using a, a quad-core 13-inch, but I've been a 15-inch user historically, and the 13-inch is like, well, it's a really good balance. I get quad-core performance, but it's in a smaller device. But the reality is I don't – so I don't use my laptop hardly at all when I'm at home. If I'm at home, I'm working in my studio. I'm not really one to take advantage of a co-working membership or work at a coffee shop. I would do it on occasion, but it can sometimes be months between those sort of let's go work somewhere else. I just, I like my studio. I built it to be the, the place where I want to spend all my time. And uh, so the, the MacBook Pro really gets only used heavily when I am traveling for work, and that involves – at the very least, doing podcasting on the road, sometimes podcasting and video, and having the larger display really makes a big difference in, in those environments. So this was the first trip I took with it, and it was so nice to to have a you know a big logic project editing live shows and not feeling like I was squished into this thirteen inch display. And so that that was really nice. Uh, the as far as the processor, you know, it's the first eight core MacBook Pro. It's kind of a sleeper in the sense that when you're not pushing it, it's totally calm. Like it doesn't get hot. It doesn't mm-hmm. burn through the battery. It doesn't rev its fans. If you're just like tooling around and, you know, Safari and email and Slack and stuff. But boy, when you need it, you know, when you when you are rendering in Logic or, or exporting through Forecast or whatever, boy, it just comes alive. And then, yes, you'll hear the fans and the battery. You'll notice it dropping, but <laughs> – it's cool to have that power on tap when you need it, and it feels mm-hmm. really well balanced. It doesn't feel like it's this crazy bonkers machine all the time. And so far, I've been I've been honestly uh, really happy with it. And I just have the stock eight core, you know, with the sixteen gigs of RAM and the the five twelve SSD, like the stock. I think it's the twenty eight hundred dollar model, and uh, I've been really happy with it so far. Yeah, everything I've seen, uh, the results have been really good. I mean, I've I've been watching. Linus Tech Tips lately, who is famously negative towards Macs generally, he sure. seems to have his hate on for Apple, but uh, hasn't been able to help himself but say good things about recent uh, Macs, including the eight core MacBook Pro. Um, they were saying great results, and so I don't know. I, I, I find those ones most interesting when it's like somebody that usually looks for an excuse mm-hmm. to say something bad, but again, like it, it, it all seems to be pointing in a really good direction for. Higher end pro use, and for me, I rely on my MacBook for everything. I'm not able to access a desktop that often, so having really fast options is so important and, and really helpful. And I'm, I'm not going to be upgrading mine until I don't know, pro- like probably whenever that rumored 16 inch happens, mm-hmm. or you know, things the design changes a bit. Um, I'm just not able to cycle through them that fast, but I am glad to see the support there. I'm glad to see that they're upgrading GPUs as often as they can and the CPU bumps and all of it. It's exactly what I want to see. And I'm just, I'm so happy about how fast the upgrades are coming and how much I really have seen that support for pros that we were all wishing for and hoping wasn't going to go away. Yeah, it feels like they've got their eye on the ball with the Mac in a in a new way. I mean, this is the what, fourth revision of this design? So 2016, basically it's been every year or so, give or take. And uh, they've they've pushed it a long way. Now, they still need to fix the keyboard, right? Like, time will tell if this keyboard is yeah. better on this one. It feels better, but, uh, you know, who knows? But uh, they still have a ways to go, and there's still obviously, like, core complaints about this machine, like 
really couldn't have room for an SD card slot, or you know, that's that's the one that's the one that gets me. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but all, like, all this that's seems what like I the, wonder though. Like it, they seem to be delivering on so many things that I really want to see what they're willing to do on this next round because you know I think universally there's been pretty negative feedback on the t- wait what's it called Touch Bar. Um, Touch you know, bar. I don't know yeah. anybody that loves it at all. Uh, mm-hmm. People accept it, but n- nobody loves it. Uh, the SD card reader, every professional complains about it. Um, I want to see how far they're willing to step back some of those decisions that yeah, a few years ago they, I think, had a bit too much pride to <laughs> change course. But I wouldn't be shocked anymore to see them go back on a few of those things. Yeah, I mean, who knows? Like the Mac Pro has USB A ports and uh, and PCI <laughs> yeah. slots, so anything's yeah, possible. Yeah, exactly. But um, uh, yeah, so those are the those are the Macs I'm using, and um, we'll put a link in the show notes to a bunch of other stuff. Um, yeah, but, and you did uh, some videos about your podcasting setup recently too, which were great. Yeah, yeah. So you know that that stuff's pretty stable for me. Like I've kind of dialed in my podcast setup, uh, and it's it's been a workhorse for me. That that is one nice thing about having a studio and having a desktop, like. Unlike you, where you have some sort of Rube, Rube Goldberg podcast machine <laughs> over there, like this is the same setup I use every day, and it's extremely consistent, and I can just turn it off when I don't need it. And there are benefits to like sort of the desktop life for a professional. I know that doesn't work for everybody, but it's possible for me, and I'm I'm really happy to just have something out here in the studio that is here when I need it, and then when I'm done for the day, you know, I lock the door and uh, just walk away. So. A laptop doesn't get out very much, you know. If, I, if I'm going to work in the house, I'll do it on my 11 inch iPad Pro. Uh, if I'm doing email or administrative work, but my creative work is still basically 100 percent on the Mac, and I, I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. Sounds like a pretty sweet setup to me, and it's been producing good stuff, Stephen. You've been putting out awesome content, so uh, thanks for doing Thank it, you. and thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, hey, anytime. I, I love hanging out, and like I said, we're going to have you on MPU here real soon, so people can keep an eye out for that. Can't wait. <laughs> 